welcome along to the Age of Plastic podcast with your host, me, Andrea Fox. This is the environmental podcast that asks, OMG, what's going on with the planet? And WTF can I do about it? I've got an amazing guest for you today who's actually one of our previous guests, environmental heroes. Cressy Wesling is a multi-award winning environmental entrepreneur who, after a chance meeting with the London Fire Brigade back in 2005, launched Elvis and Cressy, a luxury brand making products with waste items that turns 50% of profits over to the charities related to those waste products. Elvis and Cressy's first line was made from decommissioned fire hose and 50% of her profits went to the Firefighters Charity. Her company now collects 12 different waste items and it works with several charitable partnerships, most recently teaming up with a five-year partnership with the Burberry Foundation. On the podcast today, we talk about how the meaning of the term luxury has changed how to build a sustainable brand from landfill up, and how wastewater can be used to make perfume and booze. Yes, really. Here's today's guest on the Age of Plastic podcast, our first MBE, Cressy Wesling. So congratulations. When did that occur? Um, That was in February. I was actually on my birthday in 2013. That randomly happened on my birthday. That was very, very fun to go to. Buckingham Palace on my birthday. Wow, and we were just saying that you are originally f- via Canada to the UK, via Hong Kong, and your family think you sound like the Queen. Yeah, yes, that's because <laughs> they haven't heard her, her very often. Um, but also, they didn't know anything about an MBE. That was quite funny, because when I called my dad to say they've offered uh, offered me an MBE, he was like, but you didn't go to business school. I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Not that one. <laughs> yeah, because you came via business, and were you offered a job just in a chance meeting? This is before Elvis and Cressy, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think, actually, it's really easy to say that you've dictated your entire life and that you've made really conscious decisions, but I don't think I've made that many conscious decisions that I thought would have the consequences that they did. I'm very good at deciding in an instant whether I think something might be fun or challenging or not and saying yes to that. But I never, ever predict what that's going to lead to long term. So when I first met the London Fire Brigade, I had no idea that I would then be the only reason Firehose doesn't go to landfill and hasn't been going to landfill for 14 years. I didn't know, you know, you don't predict these things. (laughs) So yeah, so you... I've read that you said that waste was kind of uh, a hobby growing up. You quite liked a trip to the dump. Is that right? Yeah. So in in Western Canada, I'm not sure what our waste collection was like, but it was fairly basic when I was a kid. We did a lot of recycling. But if you wanted to get rid of your household domestic waste, you would go to the dump on a Saturday. And as a kid in the prairies, the only place where you ever saw seagulls was at the dump. We didn't have a sea for thousands (laughs) of miles. So that's where you would see them. And I remember this kind of sickly sweet smell and just this feeling of opportunity. You know, look at all this amazing stuff that's here. And that was a little bit Wild Westland when you could arrive in your truck and dump some things and take some other things home, which is certainly not allowed today, which mm-hmm. is terrible. You know, we should we should all be allowed in and out of the landfill to to well, I suppose scavenging isn't that hygienic, but there should be a better way than just putting it in the ground and trying to forget about it. And you found a great way to stop um, a massive amount of waste going to the ground with that yeah. chance encounter with the London Fire Brigade. Yeah. 
Tell us how that came about. So when I first came to the UK, and I love thinking about this now because we really didn't have, the the internet was around, but it wasn't the source of all knowledge that it is now. Oh, those there, heady days, I yeah, remember them. There was no Wikipedia and you couldn't, the government just didn't put all of its major reports online. And I was really interested in the issues affecting the UK. And where I went to find out what these issues might be was the British Library. They have a business and IP centre, which... I mean, to this day is kind of an epic place to go because they've got all the major reports, all of the all of the most incredible intel, and they've got people who will direct you down the channels that you want to go. And I there discovered various reports from whether it be DEFRA or the Office of National Statistics about how much waste the UK was producing in a year. And in 2004, which was the year I arrived, 100 million tonnes of waste went to landfill. And I remember thinking... 100 million tons. I don't even, I don't know what that looks like. I don't understand. This is so huge. This is such a tiny island nation. There is no hinterland here. It's not like you have a Siberia or a northern tundra where you can just go and really pretend this isn't happening. So I decided to go and discover what was in landfill sites. And that was the, that was the real revelation because British landfills at the time seemed very happy for a young Canadian with a backpack and a ponytail to just go wherever she wanted and ask whatever questions she wanted. And at first, I don't know, have you been to a landfill? I actually really want to go. Yeah. Is that odd? I'm so glad you no, find them exciting because I mean, I'm fascinated audi- to see what what's there. Yeah, in every audience I'm always asking who's been to a landfill and it tends to be, let's say, 5% to 10% of the population, so more than you might guess. Mm. Um But when you first arrive, you see exactly the chaos that you expect. I think there was a British murder mystery show, Silent Witness, a couple of weeks ago, which had scenes from a landfill. So even if you can't go, go to iPlayer and... Get a visual. Yes. I mean, dead bodies and all, et cetera. (laughs) Um, But it's chaos. There's bin, burst bin bags, and there's everything from dog poo to tennis rackets to nappies. And you just think, this is hopeless. I cannot do anything with this. And in a way, that's really, really depressing. But what I suppose where I got really excited was this real point of anger where where I saw three trucks that arrive right after each other, and they were all carrying this closed cell foam. And that's the kind of black foam that if you if you buy a high-end camera, it's the little, it's the foam where they cut out the spaces to put in a lens or a really expensive camera. And it's the cutouts, because obviously the, that negative space is waste. But because foam weighs nothing and we pay for landfill based on weight and not on volume, you could probably get rid of three containers of this material for for 400 pounds. You know, it was ridiculous. But it was clean and it was unused material. And actually, that kind of foam is recyclable. So what was it doing there? And the more that I would stay in certain landfills, the more I would find these patterns of waste, almost like rivers coming in. And not rivers of chaos anymore, but rivers of single-type materials that were all post-industrial waste that all had another life. And that made me think there was probably a lot of opportunity in this 100 million tons. And that's when I started really trying to break it down. So I went back to the British Library, looked up loads more information, and, you know, the progress started from from there. It's amazing. And you've been um, 
Elvis, your partner, we should point out, yes. uh, in the business. Didn't you start it with like £40 and a cutting tool yes. and he worked out a way to use, use offcuts and turn them into these beautiful items? Yeah, Elvis is, there. there is no Elvis and Cressy without Elvis. Uh, there certainly is no salvation for the fire hose without Elvis because I, in the partnership, I'm the person who brings the waste home and puts it in the middle of the floor and says, this is our responsibility. And lose, I'm sort of using the word our very loosely there because... But waste is our collective responsibility. I think that's a, a lovely yes. thing that you, you clearly see. Yes, I see. I see rights and responsibilities as part of the same... Uh, equation and I think there's an enormous amount of rights that you that you get uh, in this in this wonderful country, but with those should come an enormous feeling of debt, um, which I suppose is the business is Elvis and our, and my way of repaying those debts. But with the fire hose, I brought it home and I put it in the middle of the floor and and I said, you know, we're going to fix this. And Elvis had a, another job at the time, so he said, you know, what do we? What do you mean we? <laughs> um, but. I just kept, I just kept kind of hassling him about it and saying, "What can we do? What can we do?" And there was a lot of experimentation that ensued. I went back to the British Library and tried to understand what is nitrile rubber. That's the material that makes up hose. Where is it made? How much is there? What's the scale of the problem? What's the nature of the problem? And then, really, we were trying to think not just of a way to take it from location A and put it in location B and maybe give it a short, insignificant life. We were trying to think, what could we do to give it the, the most wonderful second life? What could we do to fill it with the love that we had for it so that other people would look at this material and think, oh, my goodness gracious, no, this cannot go in a bin. Mm. And, and that was kind of the turning point for us to focus on an industry that we knew even less about than waste, which was the luxury sector. It's just such a counterpoint, isn't it, to go from waste product to luxury. Mm. And I think that's just so amazing that you saw that. And is it true that a kind of a big break, I suppose, came via Cameron Diaz and US Vogue? I mean, you could look at the business as a series of big breaks. We Elvis was making the first ever belt. And I got a call from someone associated with the Live Earth concert in uh, which was Al Gore's concerts that toured the world to raise uh, finance for climate issues and, and environmental awareness. And they wanted us to turn Wembley green for the day. I had a green reputation, I suppose, at this point, <laughs> which can't be done. But I said, we can't do that, but we can make you these fantastic belts out of decommissioned fire hose. <laughs> and they said, wow, can you make a thousand? And I said, yes. And Elvis is on the floor cutting the first ever belt going wait a second, I haven't made a belt yet. And now you've got us making a thousand. <laughs> and that was an incredible, that was an incredible experience because we found out that first night we couldn't make a thousand because we cut as many as we could in a night and our hands the next day were claws because we were using kitchen scissors. And it was just you two at this it point. It was just us two in a house share in Brixton. We were washing fire hose in the bathtub and cleaning it with scissors on our laps. And Actually, that's why we bought the cutting tool, because we thought we're going to die if we use scissors. So we found a rotary cutting tool, which is basically like a dangerous electric pizza cutter. But that just can chew through hose. That's brilliant, as long as you keep your blade sharp. <laughs> um, so we were able to cut and make 500. And then those belts all sold at the concert. That's amazing. And we thought, who buys a belt at a concert? It's weird, you know. At the time, so, to, you know, if you think about the timing again, you think this is a time when people would buy CDs and T-shirts, mm. but they certainly wouldn't buy belts. And they bought them all. And, and that's where we knew that we really had 
quite a spectacular idea. We had something really interesting that people would really engage with. Cameron Diaz is something that happened about two years after that, um, which was in U.S. Vogue. And that was an, another amazing experience because, you know, we we didn't court that. I'd never bought a Vogue magazine. Didn't know anything about the fashion industry. But it was suddenly looking at alternatives. I think it was the first ever green issue that Vogue had done. Wow. Yeah. And it's so and so unusual to um, step into an industry that you didn't know anything about before. Um, I just think that's really so impressive, especially one that's so vast, like the fashion industry. Mm-hmm. And you're already have um, you've teamed up with the Burberry Foundation now, haven't you? Yeah, I I, I don't think it's impressive. I think it's naive. Um, <laughs> well, I think it's we, impressive. <laughs> if we'd had an idea of the size of our competition and. And a real understanding of how it worked. I'm not sure it's what we would have chosen to do. But the hose told us what to do. And that's the same with every waste that we reclaim. We're looking at what its maximum potential future might be and where it can, where we can maximize its value and its uh, second life and where we can create real engagement and real dialogue. And, and luxury has been fantastic for that. Um, I think what was really weird for us was 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 coming into an industry where we didn't understand the rules, we didn't understand the production techniques. Nobody wanted to work with fire hose because it was fire hose and not leather. Wow. Um, so we were rejected by pretty much every manufacturer in Western Europe and then uh, finally found one in Romania, uh, which was our first manufacturing partner before we set up our own manufacturing. But if we hadn't found the group in Romania to take a chance on us, I think it would have been over before it began. Wow. Uh, So there was all kinds of amazing things that happened to us. You know, I'm sure a lot of it came from us being extremely stubborn and from the fact that I kept bringing more fire hose home. So I had to go (laughs) somewhere. Got to get rid of it somehow. Yeah, yeah, I had to go somewhere. I think that's so, it's kind of a sad indictment of the fashion industry Mm. and manufacturers that there were so many closed doors in that journey. But it just goes to show nothing's easy. And if you persevere like like you have... Yeah, nothing is easy. But also, I think the biggest thing for me is intent. Uh, Our intention was to rescue the fire hose and was to set up a business that challenged not just the luxury industry, but every industry. You know, why start a business? I'm not interested in entrepreneurs that want to start a business to make money. You know, money isn't even a a real thing anymore. It's just a, a, a one and a zero in a you know, in the internet somewhere. Hmm. It's not real. So I'm interested in people who want to actually solve some of the huge problems that we're facing. And if you can use the lens of business to do that, I think it's a worthwhile project. If you're just making money or just exploiting something, I don't even think we should call this innovation or business. I think we should find other words for it, all of which would be rather negative. Um, So for me, the intent behind it was more important, let's say, than the material or the industry we were in. It was about doing something well and doing every aspect of that to the best of our ability and to the best that we knew we could for the environment and for its people. I've heard you talk about having a purpose rather than idea as um, the reason behind business. And I think that is really inspiring. Yeah. Because... I mean, purpose is becoming a, a real buzzword, which is great. Um but when someone talks about their purpose, I always want to know the real deeper questions because, you know, I don't want a big company that exploits its its workforce to say, well, our purpose is to employ lots and lots of people. 
because yes, they might be achieving their purpose just in terms of sheer numbers. But if everybody who works for them is seriously unhappy and unable to afford a place to live, then it's kind of, uh, you know, meaningless. Yeah, there are some. As a company, Elvis and Cressy says the future of luxury is sustainable, ethical, reclaimed, open, generous and kind. So Mm. that's all wrapped up in kind of your business ethos, isn't it? Yeah. And we thought a lot about what words we would include there. Because for a long time, people's understanding of luxury came to them from the businesses that dominate the industry. And I don't think that's that's a great idea because I think the message that they're that they're giving us is certainly for the last 15 to 20 years is wrong because it's about unsustainable levels of consumption. It's about bling. It's not necessarily about provenance. It's more about something that has a high price tag. And if luxury could go back to the roots that it came from, which was when it had to be something that was made incredibly well by someone who was treated incredibly well, then that's a wonderful place for it to be. But that's not where luxury is right now. That's where it seeks to go. And we didn't want to start at the wrong end of that spectrum. We wanted to start where it should be. It's a really interesting point about luxury. I hadn't thought of it like that, but that is, of yeah. course, the history of the word. Yeah. And when you think of luxury, obviously one of the big UK companies is Burberry. Yes. So did they have a leather cut-off issue or was this something that you read about in the British Library and you honed in on? So it's kind of tough for me now because... My favorite thing to do is to look in dumpsters and go to landfill sites. And I don't get the opportunity to do it so much anymore because literally every week someone will send me a box of something really fascinating. Um, and the rule is I can only open it on a Friday because if I open it on Tuesday, that's it. I'm kind of done for it. <laughs> really? Wow. Um, but we had someone approach us, re- let me think, 2010, 2011, an amazing saddle maker. And he sent us a bag of leather scraps. And he said, this is what's left at the end of the year, and, I, and I'm devastated by it. So this is a true craftsman, in my view, getting in touch with us, because he was devastated by it, and it was a tiny amount. But we still looked at that and thought, okay, what does then this problem look like at a global scale? And that, you know, went back to the library, started doing some research. The UN uh, report, the, I think the last UN report about it came out in 2011 or something like that, and it said there was approximately 800,000 tons of industrial offcut a year globally, and 35,000 of those tons are in Western Europe. This is, again, huge amounts. So we decided to not design products from it, but to design a system. The brief I wrote for Elvis literally was, everybody's talking about the circular economy, let's actually make it happen. Um, that means it has to be designed for deconstruction. You have to, it has to be fun, it has to be engaging, we have to cherish the leather as it is. Right now, a lot of this industrial leather waste the best hope for it is that it gets ground up and made into a pleather, you know, a kind of a leather MDF. And some of those processes are chemically intensive and some of them are not. But for me, the leather as it is has so much value in it now. Why would we grind that to a dust? Why don't we just cherish it as it is? And what Elvis came up with was was a series of shapes that you can interlock like Lego to make pretty much whatever you want. And then we started going on this adventure with this material, and we started making rugs and things like that. And then we got approached by Burberry. I was giving a speech at an event in uh, somewhere in the city, somewhere near Bank, and two wonderful people from the Burberry sustainability team approached me afterwards and said, okay, we have nine tons a month. What can you do with that? Wow. And then it was two and a half a years of negotiations. Bag, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then we then we spend a long time talking. And this is mm. the issue for me: is that as mm. an entrepreneur, I could have, I could have started immediately. But uh, you know, as a business that has ten thousand people and is listed, and 
you know, their decision-making process is somewhat more complicated than ours, let's, let's say that. And they wanted it to be right. So what I love about where we're at now is that it was incredibly brave of them because every other group that approached us with, a, with their leather said, please take it away from us, but you can never tell anyone where it came from. Really? So the what exciting, was behind that? Well, because Just... nobody wants to admit they have a problem. Okay. It's the same as any kind of dependency issue, really. Nobody wants, and particularly in luxury, people like to keep the doors closed. They don't like to admit to having any problems. But Burberry, here they were saying, this is it. And you can share this information because we're going to be talking about the solution. We're going to be talking about what we're going to be able to transform it into and what impact that's going to have. So to me, that was very, very, very exciting, was that mm -hmm. they wanted to be public about it. The other thing that excited me was that they were just open about not just their leather issue, but about their entire journey towards becoming a, a sustainable business. So it's been very exciting to work with them over the past couple of years. Mm, that is interesting because it leads on to something else I wanted to ask you about. You hear about greenwashing with companies, but I notice yeah. Elvis and Cressy, your own uh, B Corp, certified B Corp and certified social enterprise for goods. So was that a hard thing to do to get that certification? I think we, so B Corp is, is a newer platform than Elvis and Cressy is. Social enterprise, the concept of that has obviously been around for a very long time. But I think we were a social enterprise at birth. You know, we had those values from day one and we were a B Corp before B Corps existed. I think it's really, really hard if you are a legacy business and you are deciding to now become a B Corp. So the work that Danone has done to take some of their brands into, into being B Corps is incredible because they weren't that to begin with. Whereas what we have always been that way. What I do love about being in both of these camps, though, is that you get to meet some of the most wonderful entrepreneurs that are doing constant innovation. And I, by innovation, I mean environmental and social innovation. And that means that you are constantly challenged to do better every single day. How can I be better? We still have some compromises. How can I get rid of this? How can I get rid of that? And I suppose that brings me to, um, you know, our plastic story. We, obviously, Blue Planet came out and there was this huge wave of feeling about plastic in the UK. And then you had Theresa May making a, a quite a sad announcement about how we were going to spend 25 years banning single-use plastic. And I remember being really depressed by that because I thought, we've got a zeitgeist here. We've got some of the most incredible packaging development companies in the world in the UK. We are an innovative nation. We've got all the environmental brain power we need to say, no, we're going to eliminate this overnight. You know, we're going to do it in five years. Let's set a really ambitious agenda, create loads of jobs. You know, the same as what we should have done with renewable energy. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> and... And that my reaction to that was to go down to the workshop floor and say, look, we have some plastic around. How do we get rid of it? I want it gone. And it was all gone in three days. And it's we'd amazing. already gotten rid of most of it. But there was things like small uh, courier packages. Our courier partner wants to put it in something called an express pack, which is a plastic bag. Mm -hmm. And we just said, guys, we're not doing it anymore. And they're like, but you have to do it. No. After three days, the standoff was over and we won. <laughs> so it's kind of you have to be willing to do these things. But it took us three days. Yeah. So when everyone tells me that this is particularly for the fashion industry where everything gets single bagged into these poly bags, it's not an insurmountable issue. It's a question of will. Mm. And when it comes to single use plastic, we were just talking about this before we started recording. But um, you mentioned something that could solve this issue of single-use plastic that I'd never heard of before that's to do with starch and potatoes. 
Well, you know, biodegradable plastics have been around for a really long time. The recycling industry doesn't love them because the recycling industry is geared up to recycle uh, polymers and mm. PET. And our waste, we, we in the UK right now have something like 78 different waste strategies. We need one national waste strategy and we need to agree to a set list of ingredients that can package our goods. And only those components that can be 100% recycled or reused in mm. the UK should be allowed to go forward. We shouldn't be allowed these complex polymer blends that cannot be recycled here or in Western Europe. Because if you're creating something and the only hope for its death is a waste to energy incinerator, then basically you've decided to, to sort of defeat yourself before you've even begun. You know, we need to think about the long term in everything that we do. And certainly we need to think about that in our national waste strategy. Because right now, consumers through council tax are paying for the waste. And actually, we could be paying a lot less if our way of meandering through life involved a lot of a lot of less single-use things to begin with. Yeah, and we mentioned as well that a lot of the argument with regards to alternative options, which are sometimes more expensive, is mm. like the feminist argument as well of, you know, re washing a reusable nappy is uh, quite time-consuming. Mm. And a lot of these things have come about to allow us to live a modern life. And I sometimes struggle with that because I don't think we've necessarily made our lives better and and we've not made the planet better. But it's an interesting point about the feminist argument. I hadn't thought of that before. But if your modern life is increasingly unsustainable, then we shouldn't be allowed to live it. So I suppose I can be quite um, binary sometimes. And I really genuinely feel that most people's understanding of sustainability is quite vague. But I always ask them to look at the term unsustainable. And if you Google unsustainable, it'll tell you two things. It will say not able to be maintained in the long term. And the second thing it says is indefensible. So you have to decide if the business you're going to run, the activities you're going to engage with, the coffee you're going to buy is indefensible. Because to me, if it's, if it's not fair trade coffee, it's indefensible coffee. So I would rather have, I would love to see this, this labeling regime. I'd love to go into a supermarket and see 90% of the aisles called the indefensible aisles and see how that mm. nudged people maybe in a different direction. Because you could then have this wonderful aisle that was like, this is the, this is the sustainable aisle. This is what's defensible. We can maintain this. We, we, we don't celebrate the right things. We really don't. That's so true. That's such an interesting idea as well. Are mm. you... Just on that point, how, meat eater. Are you a meat eater or vegetarian? So we're flexitarian. Okay. Actually, I thought what was really interesting was that when this Lancet diet came out, that mm. it was in the last few weeks, that it's a complete overlap between what is healthy for the environment and what is healthy for people. And Elvis and I looked at that and we're like, yeah, that's, that's basically, we're nailing it right now. Um, Good for you. Yeah. But, but, but I think it's just because over the over, over years... You just look at all of these choices and it then puts you on, on a path to eating, you know, things that you know didn't have to be, didn't have to travel thousands of miles. Or, you know, when you are having a protein, understanding where that protein came from and what kind of life it might have had and whether that's a sustainable life or filled with antibiotics or something like that. You know, these are all really, really important things to decide. But you can't, I think we're in this time where the food debate is really interesting because mm. we have a lot of people that will straight say an all plant diet is the most environmental diet. But I don't think you can be that black and white about that because 
an all plant diet in a lot of cases is a really unsustainable diet because things are transported so far. You know, there's a lot of people who say that local seasonal produce, including some proteins, is the most sustainable that you can go. So I don't think the research is totally nailed down there yet. But I do like what the Lancet came up with because it gives you quite a good balance. And what it says is 30 grams of red meat a week, which is a burger a week. It's crazy, isn't it? How little we should be eating, really. Yes. For the planet and for ourselves, like you say. Yes. And I'm, you know, I'm from Western Canada, where this is a beef, beef beef-heavy diet. Yeah. Uh, You know, and I can see how a lot of people probably have three or four burgers a week. And some people have two or three burgers a day. (laughs) (laughs) And that's impossible. That's an impossible. That's an impossibility. Yeah. Unsustainable. Yeah unsustainable for sure. I wanted to go back to some more waste items that you've added since the fire hoses. You've also taken on leather and you've taken on something which I had never even heard of before, which is an old print, something to do with printing? It's a printing blanket. So this is again, you know, this came to us because a company sent us some. Um, Basically in the offset printing industry, you have these rubber mats and that rubber is wetted uh, because it's welded almost irrevo- uh, irrevocably to a canvas base. And those mats go out, and that's what the ink is rolled out on for it to be collected up and then put into, you know, to print a magazine or to... It's basically like a giant stamp pad. Okay. Um, and when those get lots of nicks in them, the ink doesn't transfer cleanly, and you get, uh, you know, a the without the crossing of the T, right? Yeah. And you get that in every single brochure that you're about <laughs> to print or every single newspaper. So this waste kind of, uh, you know, it, it, it just happens. And even though they repair the blankets and they maintain them, this still happens. And when it dies, it dies. You know, this is not a material that is designed to be recycled. It wasn't built that way. And it just, it, it exists. So we found a lot of different in- interesting ways to transform printing blanket into products and into packaging. You did have a few prototypes as well that didn't quite work out with the fire hoses. Tell me about the roof tiles oh you tried goodness. to create. Well, we I bet that roof is still there. So, <laughs> you know, in uh, just behind Acre Lane in Brixton. <laughs> I'm sure there's Uh-oh. a little Victorian semi that has a shed in the back garden with a fire hose tiled roof. What we discovered, though... Um, was two things when we started to really research because we made the fire hose tiles before we had done our due diligence on nitrile rubber. If you have fire hose outside in the elements for 10 years, it will start to crack. So that means leaky roofs. And also if fire hose is not fire hose and it's not a tube with water running through it, it's not actually fireproof either because for it to be fireproof, it requires that water be running through it to take the heat away. So it loses its fire rating. That means that we would have leaky flammable roofs. So that's why that idea never Not what anyone wants. Well, I think the bags are much prettier, so, yeah, yeah, than the roof They have a much better way of communicating a message as well. Yeah, definitely. And is there anything else on your hit list? Because you've added so much more, like coffee bags as well, to the list, as as well as the printing blankets. We have about 15 materials that we collect on a regular basis right now. I think uh, we have been doing a lot of work with TSAC for a long time now. But we have some really exciting innovations with that that are going to be maybe, I would say, I would like to say a couple of months away, but I know realistically Mm -hmm. they're a couple of years away. We have some other exciting innovations that we're going to do with water as well. So there's there's all kinds of material that we just want to prove a point with. Mm. I think the other exciting thing about what Elvis and I do is that all of it can be scaled. All of it can be adopted. Mm. Our way of working is entirely transparent. So when you were saying about what kind of luxury business we are, we are open and transparent. 
And that means that we are available to be learned from. Mm. You know, we, we open our doors, people come in, we have literally no secrets. And that means that a lot of the ideas that we bring forward can be shared. You know, we, I met someone from the British Council, I think, in Egypt. And he said that they use one of our short films to present to young Egyptian business, uh, businesses and entrepreneurs. And he, he says that we, our idea, has launched 14 different reclamation businesses in Egypt. Wow, yeah. that's amazing. And that's one story. And it is, I think it's because we go out there and we tell people the truth and we say yeah. how exciting it is to run a business that really does something worth doing. Yeah. And also that it's so much easier when you start with those principles to then scale up. Yeah. Like you say, it's a bit harder to retrofit those ethics onto your company. Yes. Because right now, when we scale, we can't scale without achieving two of the things that are core to our DNA. So if our, our DNA is rescue, transform and donate. Yes, those those are the three pillars, right? The The bigger we are, the more material we rescue, the more material we transform, and the more money we give away. So I just think that it means that growth for us is good. It means that we should have a license to trade in the long term. It means that we are defensible and sustainable because what we're doing, no matter what size or what scale it's on, will fundamentally be good because you couldn't suddenly stop giving money away. You know, we we think that the circular economy means the circular flow of capital as well. And and it also it, it also means that we couldn't ever grow without, you know, with with giving up this concept of rescue. Yeah. And you mentioned wastewater in there as well. Do mm. you have an alcohol business in mind with that? Well, there's, you know, a lot of luxury businesses make perfume and and quite a few of them are into alcohol as well. And we know that wastewater is not in any way treated to the degree it needs to be treated. Explain a bit more about that because that's not something I have no concept of. So if you if you think of a really interesting case study is Singapore. Singapore does not have enough of its own fresh water. So they invested really, really heavily in a water-to-water system so that their wastewater could be suitable drinking water. And that means that they do Uh, You know, they separate the liquids from the solids with mesh screening. They do all kinds of levels of filtration. They do reverse osmosis. They just do world-class sewage treatment and water treatment. They're pretty much the only ones in the world that are treating water to that level. Wow. Okay. Everyone else is subpar. And that means that a lot of the chemistry that goes into agriculture, a lot of the chemistry that goes into people, is going straight into into the water. And the only way to get that out is to put an enormous amount of effort into water. And right now, I know that people complain about their water bills, but actually water is incredibly cheap. You know, I think my water bill is 22 pounds a month. Mm. And this is a ridiculously low cost for the fact that healthy drinking water is piped directly into my home. Mm. And I would rather it be more expensive and be pristine as if people had never existed than than the state it's in. And I would really, really, and I'm desperate for that to happen because I don't want us to have a class-based water system. There's a lot of places where people have gone uh, completely dependent on bottled water. Mm. And that means that, that people with a lot of money can access clean water and people without any money can't because you stop then as a society investing in water infrastructure. Mm. So it's really important for us to invest heavily in well, basically the environment, because that's our future. But water and climate change, these are all big deal. And we're not putting anywhere near enough money into these areas. Mm. Whilst we touch on money, I love your idea of tax parties that you have in the company. <laughs> Can you talk about that? Well, we, 
you know, there's this whole bizarre debate about how you should minimize uh, taxes. And then you've got all of these people who are tax exiles and they spend three months here and three months there. You've got companies that say they pay tax in the countries where they generate revenue, but really we all know that they're just taking advantage of bad legislation. And then you have Elvis and my philosophy, which is we live in a country that has very low corruption. We live in a country that has incredibly good public transport. And I know that a lot of people will find that, particularly people in Brighton will find that hard to hear. But go to rural Canada where there is none and then come back here and be really, really grateful for the fact that most of the time trains do what they are supposed to. We have all of, you know, I came as an immigrant in 2004 and set up a business. And by 2013, I was an MBE. You know, this is an incredible country where there's all kinds of opportunity. And that costs money maintaining that level of opportunity. You know, the, the NHS is incredible. So there's so many amazing things here that are so worth paying for. And it doesn't, I don't agree with everything that the government does. But what we, what we do on tax day is we just pretend that they've spent it on cancer and childhood education and trains. And, and then we're happy about it. Then it is a celebration because you think, thank goodness we live here. Um, so, yeah, that's part of the whole rights and responsibilities thing. But the other thing about having a tax party is that's also the day we give money away because you're looking at what our annual revenue is and what our profit share is, and then we write our checks to the firefighters' charity. So, of course, this is all worth celebrating. This feels incredibly good. You know, people who... We've had a lot of proto-investors who've questioned this decision over time, going, 50% so really high. It feels amazing. There isn't anyone associated with the business that doesn't feel incredibly proud of that. Because the work that, let's say the firefighters charity, the work that the firefighters charity does is so incredible. You know, it works to keep their health and their sanity. And one of the biggest things that we have in the fire service is PTSD. And it has a really, really incredible mental health program not just for fire service personnel, but for their families who also suffer from PTSD through transference. You know, I think what they do is amazing and they need more money. And so it, it is a day of celebration for sure. I love that ethos. I think I've heard someone describe tax as the money you have to pay to live in a civilized society. And yeah. I just, and I do my tax as a freelancer the same way. And I've yeah. started trying to think of like, this is going to something good, the yeah. money that I'm giving to the government. Yeah. We, keep, we keep our fingers crossed, yeah. at least. I was born in Western Canada. I had an amazing education, an unbelievable family, a world-class education. I had, it's, a, it's a lottery win, you know, mm. all of that. And I really feel every day like it's a debt I will never repay. So the tax is nothing. It's nothing. It's not a fraction of what I owe. Wow. And um, I feel slightly worried to ask this because I think there might be five million things on your to-do list. Mm. But what's next for Elvis and Cressy? Well, there are five million things on the list. And Elvis is always keen to keep me focused on what's really at hand. We have made a big commitment to leather. And at the moment, we are not making a big enough dent. When we made a commitment to fire hose, within five years, we'd solved the fire hose problem yes. for London. None of it goes to landfill yes. now, which is all down to you. So we need to make a significant dent in leather in order for us to really feel like we can do anything like move on. You know, the, the there of course, new materials will come into the collection. We will work on new projects. That is definitely required for stimulation and excitement and keeping 
everybody, um, you know, engaged and energized, but we are committed to the leather in a very big way. Mm, so that's the main focus. And it's a massive problem. Yeah. Amazing. Um, so, you know, obviously our previous guest, Alice Nogden Newton from Keep Britain Tidy, who you do lots of work with, you were her environmental hero. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to ask you for your environmental hero in just a second. But first up, to prove that we are lovers, not haters, and try and keep things positive on the podcast, your favourite use for plastic, your favourite plastic item, because it's a good material, we're just using it in the incorrect way. I I really struggle with this, actually. I think it's probably, you know, something like blood bags for the NHS. It's probably something that they have worked really, really hard to get right and is quite indispensable now for for people's health. I think I think if we manage to get rid of plastic, the place where I w- where it will go last will be where it is life saving. Yeah, I have to agree with that. You can't really. Yeah, my sister's been quite ill in hospital recently, and you just can't. I can cope with that. Yeah, it's keeping us alive. Yeah, Blood but bags a coffee is... lid is not life saving, and a plastic fork is not life saving, and exactly. a Q-tip is not life saving. It's not a blood bag. No. Um. So your environmental hero. This is an easy one for me, actually, because it is for sure my grandmother, my uh, my mom's mom. Um, and I think it's it's because the value system that she, you know, spread amongst her grandchildren and her children was so strong and so powerful that none of us have been able to escape it. You know, she didn't ever waste anything. Really? Literally. And I'm not talking just about materials. I'm talking about time, talent, opportunity. Um, the chance to give someone a hug or the chance to help someone. If you were driving down a road and she saw Saskatoon bush, which is like a little wild Canadian blueberry, I think they have something, they have something similar in Cornwall called a whortleberry. Oh, okay. Um, she would pull over and we would be picking a bucket of that you know, for making pies. She, there was, she didn't waste anything and she loved, she was sort of overcommitted to everything and the amount of love that she gave us it's kind of like the battery that you could run on forever. That's such a lovely note to end on. Thank you so much for talking to me for the Age of Plastic podcast. Thank you. I just find Cressy's attitude incredibly inspiring. She's such a headstrong guest. She's so inquisitive about the world. She didn't take no for an answer and she's built an amazing company in an industry she had no prior knowledge about just because she saw a problem and she wanted to solve it. She's got really powerful messages about the difference we can all make if we just take on a bit of responsibility to consume differently, to ask questions about how and why things are done, to ask more of businesses and to ask more of governments. I highly recommend looking up elvisandcressy.com to find out more about their products, their workshops and their ethos. And on next week's podcast, coming up in two weeks, I'll be talking to a woman who has literally just got back from rowing across the Atlantic with her team to highlight the plastic waste in our oceans. Her name is Laura Try, and I can't wait for you to hear our chat. So until next time on the Age of Plastic podcast, I'm off to book a tour of a landfill.